So there's, the sermon text will be verses 19 to 23. We'll read 16 to 23. 1 John 3, starting in verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And here's the sermon text. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him and whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. That sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give me strength, strength to stand, strength to speak your word, I pray for all of your people's hearts, all the broken hearts and guilty consciences, condemning hearts, that you would reassure them, that you'd lift them up, encourage them, teach them to fall upon you, teach them to rest in your love, teach them to wrestle with you until they have that peace that assurance that your love, your grace, rests upon them securely forever. I ask this to the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. There's a saying that goes, there's nothing worse than a guilty conscience. And although that might be an exaggeration to say there's nothing worse than a guilty conscience, it's not too much of an exaggeration. Uh, a guilty conscience for a Christian could be an awful thing. And if it's a strong enough guilt, a strong enough condemnation from your own heart, it can almost debilitate you. It can almost keep you from getting up in the morning. It can make you feel like God could not possibly love you. It can make you feel like God's even out to get you, opposed to you. A guilty conscience, of course, can wreck your assurance that you are, in fact, saved. Now, in 1 John 3, in this chapter, John had just talked about true believers. And a test of being a true believer is that you truly love the brothers. You truly love other Christians. That's evidence that you're really a believer. And he just gave Jesus... As the ultimate example of that love, 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So when we read that, and we read the whole passage, we have to recognize just how much we fall short of what we should be when it comes to loving. We see how much... We fail and fall flat on our face. We can be so selfish and prideful and just downright unloving towards those that we're supposed to love the best. From looking at ourselves, 
we can see why we might up, we may end up questioning whether or not we really are saved. Do we even really love the brothers? Yet, for those of us who are truly saved, who truly know the Lord, that's not the purpose of 1 John, to make us doubt that we're saved. In fact, John said in the beginning of the letter, in 1 John 1, 4, he says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, for many of us, as we read through 1 John and go through it, some of the content of this letter can be so convicting to you that it may make you, make you question your own salvation. Yet, of course, if we're not truly saved, that is a good thing. Because if you're not truly saved, you should recognize you're not saved and come to Christ for salvation. Yet, for those of us who truly are saved, lack of assurance is not something that you should be okay with. You should not be satisfied with not knowing for sure if you're saved. We're told in, in 2 Peter that we're supposed to be sure. 2 Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. To make certain, you need to know. And that's the purpose of First John as well. He writes these things so that we may know that we have eternal life. So since it's the aim of John to make our joy complete, we must have assurance before God. Because lack of assurance and fullness of joy don't go together. A condemning conscience is a joy killer in your heart. So John, in the text that we have tonight, after laying out the test of do you love the brothers to see if you're really saved, he aims to reassure us. And we have, a, we have a, a guilty conscience, a condemning heart. He aims to reassure us before God that we are his and we are saved. So look at 19 and 20 in the text. First John 3, 19 and 20. We will know by this that we are of the truth. And will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So the aim here is not to have that guilty conscience that makes you lack assurance of your salvation. We should have confidence before God that we're loved by him, forgiven by him, and accepted by him. But true Christians, real Christians, sometimes wonder... Am I really saved? Does God really love me? Am I really forgiven? They can look, you can look at your own failure to love others in a Christ-like way and ask, how can I really be a born-again Christian? And that's what John says when he says, in whatever our, our heart condemns us, it's that types of thoughts that he's talking about. Whatever our heart condemns us. When he says heart here, it's the same thing as conscience. It means the same thing. When our conscience condemns us. A true Christian's conscience tells him that he is guilty. His heart condemns him. And his guilty conscience can go so far as to make him question whether or not he really is saved. He can see that lack of Christ-likeness in his life. Yet John tells us here that when our hearts condemn us, we can have our hearts reassured before God. We need to aim at that. Aim at having our conscience be at ease, to have assurance of our own salvation, knowing that God loves us, forgives us, and accepts us. So John lays out for us here in this text two remedies to the problem of lack of assurance due to a guilty conscience. Okay, so here are the two remedies that he gives us in this text to deal with that issue. The first is this, recognize the fruit 
that God has produced in your life. Secondly, recognize the omniscience of God and his promises in his word. Recognize the fruit that he's produced in your life. And secondly, recognize he knows all things and his promises in the gospel. So let's look at the first one. The first one is the fruit that he has produced in your life. Recognize that in your life. Look at verse 19 and 20. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him and whatever our heart condemns us. I'll stop there. John says that we will know that we are of the truth. That we'll know that we're saved. How? He says we'll know by this. Now what's he referring to? He's referring back to the previous verse, verse 18, 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. He's, refer- he's referring back to the test of love that he had just covered. We'll know that we're born again if we love the brothers. Not just claiming that we love the brothers, but actually proving it by how we act towards them. By this love, we will know that we're of the truth. In other words, one of the ways that we'll know that we're true Christians who truly believe the true gospel is if we have a genuine love for other believers. That was the test that we looked at in the last sermons. This has been one of the great tests in 1 John. Do we love? Do we love the brothers? 1 John 3.14 in the previous section lays it out pretty clear. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. About as straightforward as he can get. So if you don't love the brothers, then you're still dead in your sins and separated from God. And you do not know God. You don't have peace with God if you don't love the brothers. Because loving the brothers is a sure test that you've been born again. We know that we're true believers if we love the brothers. So the first way that we can reassure our hearts before God is by recognizing that he, re- that he really has produced the fruits of love in our hearts. One commentator said this. Love is the final objective test of our Christian profession. For true love, in the sense of self-sacrifice, is not natural to human beings in their fallen state. In other words, self-sacrificial love is not something that natural men do for others in their day-to-day living. That is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Being like Jesus is not something that unconverted men do, in other words. So in the previous verses here in chapter 3, he characterized the world not by love, but by hatred, the opposite. So being a Christian is, is just so opposite to what you were before. So the questions that we can ask to reassure our hearts is this. Do I love the brother self-sacrificially? Not in the sense of perfect consistency. Not are you perfect at loving, but has God changed my heart to love his church And to care for my fellow believers. Has he given me an affection and unity with the church so that I want to be a part of his church and be involved in serving and caring for them? Recall in 1 John, John's dealt with a lot of false teachers in 1 John. And remember, they taught heresies and they disrupted the church. And then what? They left. They abandoned the church. They showed that they did not love the brothers because they did not care for them or stay with them. True Christians stay in the truth, and they stay with Christ's bride as their family, their brothers, their sisters. So we, with with all true Christians, we love our spiritual family. We have one Father in heaven, and we are his true, his people are his true children, and we love our family. 
Yes, we love them inconsistently and weakly and poorly, but we love them genuinely. I know a Christian who struggled with assurance because of sin in their life. But they would reassure themselves by remembering their former life. They would say something like this. I remember before I was a Christian. I hated Christians. And now I love them. Now, that's in the midst of them being convicted over their sin and how big a failure they are at loving others. But they say, I used to hate Christians, and I do love them now. I do love them. Even though their love is weak at times, it's still there. It's still present in the person who is saved. And that's why it reassures our hearts. He reminds us that God has produced love for believers in your hearts, if you're a true believer. Even when you're falling flat on your face, being selfish, prideful, over and over and over again, not loving well at all, we can still see, has God really produced the fruit of love for the brothers in my heart? It will not be perfect. It will sometimes be weaker than at other times. But it will be there if you're a true believer. You can reassure your guilty conscience that even though you were unloving towards a brother, that you're still truly saved, forgiven, and loved by God because you really do have a a genuine desire to love like Jesus loves. You really want to fit that bill of 1 John 3, 16, laying down your life for your brothers. You fail, you fail, but you want it. You're repentant of it when you fail. And you can see that God has produced that desire in your heart. That desire to be Christ-like in your love is not there naturally. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, and you can recognize that. A desire for Christ-like love is evidence that God has made you born again, and therefore has forgiven you. So the first way to reassure your hearts in the presence of God is to look and see that he has truly produced love in your heart. Even when you're acting in an unloving way and your conscience is rightfully bothered by your unloving attitudes. Nevertheless, we can see God has really changed me. He's really given me a love in my heart for other believers. Now, the second remedy to reassure our heart is the omniscience of God and his promises. Look again at 19 and 20. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will reassure our hearts before him and whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. It's that last phrase that we'll focus on now. For God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. So the second way to reassure your heart before God of your salvation and the love that God has for you is to appeal to God who knows all things rather than appealing to your heart. And what you feel. Appealing to God who knows all things rather than how your heart feels today. If you have a guilty conscience because of your sin, you may feel that it's impossible for God to love you. That may be what your heart is saying to you. It may feel like it's impossible for someone as unloving as you to truly be born again, considering how evil you can be. But the remedy here is to appeal to a greater judge of ourselves than our own consciences, God himself. Our conscience judges us, but God's judgment is greater than our conscience. He knows all things, and therefore he knows that you're loved by him, even when you don't think he could. He knows that he loves you, even if you doubt it. He knows that you're forgiven, even if you question it. 
He knows that you're saved. He knows that he's made you born again. And he knows he has borne the fruit of the Spirit in you. Even when you feel like none of those things could possibly be true because of your condemning heart. Your heart as a Christian may even cry out to you, you're going to hell. But God says, no, I've saved you so you can be with me and know me. He's greater than the judgment of your conscience because your conscience can be wrong, but he can't. He knows better than your conscience. So we need to appeal to what God has promised in his word, what he has said, rather than how you feel in your heart when you feel guilty. Let's look at this further. This is, this is great. This is important. We know, I'm sure, I know, I'm sure you know from experience that your heart or your conscience will often condemn you and tell you that you're guilty, make you question the love of God or that you're saved. And we have two kinds of ways that our conscience may condemn us. Our conscience may condemn us legitimately and illegitimately. What do I mean by that? Well, first, legitimately. A guilty conscience is legitimate, of course, when we've sinned. We may feel guilty if we've done wrong things. Uh, One commentator said, Often our conscience accuses us justly. At such times, only when it is overruled by the pardoning edict of God can its voice be properly hushed. So in other words, how can we reassure ourselves of our acceptance before God when we really have sinned and been unloving? And the answer is this, by focusing on and believing the promises of God in the gospel of Jesus. Just listen to some of these. I mean, we could go all day with these. Let's look at a couple. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a gospel promise. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a gospel promise. God has provided Jesus to make peace between us and himself. Yes, you've sinned, but you still have peace with God. That's what the gospel is all about. When you're a Christian, you have peace with God, even when you sin. Once you're in Christ, your sin cannot separate you from the love of God. That's what the last part of Romans 8 is about. Nothing can. Christ has taken away your sins. So nothing can stand in the way between you and your God. You're at peace with him. That's that's the point. Reconciliation between you and God. As the commentator said, when our conscience accuses us because of sin, it only can be overruled by the pardoning edict of God. Can it be properly hushed when we really believe the gospel promises? You have to know that God has sent Jesus precisely because you're a sinner. Because you are unloving. And he has reconciled you to himself with a reconciliation that can't be undone. That's the beauty of it. That's the glory of it. So when you feel guilty about sins that you've actually committed, the only way to reassure your heart when you lack assurance is to rest on the gospel promises. Like like this, for example, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You feel guilty in your conscience. You're begging for forgiveness. God says, it's done. I forgive you. That's it. Because of what Jesus has done. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. He will do it on his own character. He will do it. So our conscience may uh, make make us feel guilty because we've sinned. Other times our conscience may, may make us feel guilty even when we haven't sinned. That would be an illegitimate accusation from our conscience. A commentator said, Our conscience is by no means infallible. Its condemnation may often be unjust. 
We can therefore appeal from our conscience to God, who is greater and more knowledgeable. And he says this, this is great. His omniscience should relieve us, not terrify us. So what's the point here? John's saying that when our heart condemns us, we can appeal to God who knows everything. He knows all things. So whether our hearts are condemning us legitimately because of our sin or illegitimately because we're off balance, either way, we can appeal to God who, unlike our conscience, unlike our hearts, we can appeal to God who knows everything perfectly. He knows perfectly that he loves us. And even though we may feel condemned for our sins, God does not condemn us for our sins. He is greater than your heart. He forgives you. Here's a great summary of this from a different commentator. When we trust the judgment of our conscience to our great God, who is omniscient about everything, our confidence shifts from being based on our experience and our feelings to being based on God's word and what he says about us. He tells me there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So instead of going based on your heart's feelings and how you feel condemned and unloved or unlovable, listen to what God has said instead, who is greater than your heart and who knows all things. Now here's a question for true Christians, for you, to see whether or not you're really viewing God correctly here. Does the fact that God knows everything about you, everything about your life, does that bring you peace or does it bring you despair? Does the omniscience of God bring you joy or does it make you scared? If it makes you scared, do you know why it makes you scared? Because you're not viewing God in light of the gospel and your conscience is condemning you. When you think of God's omniscience, you think about how God knows all your evil thoughts and every wicked thing that's come out of your mouth and the things you've done in secret. And you think that since God knows all things perfectly and he'll make the hammer fall on you because of every sin you've ever committed. No sin will go unnoticed. No sin will go unpunished. God knows everything and it terrifies you. Well, those things are true if you are outside of Christ, if you are not a believer. But if you are in Christ, then then the omniscience of God, the all-knowing ability of God, it takes a wonderful turn if you're in Christ. God knows everything about you. Every vile thing you've thought, said, or done, and yet loves you and loves you and loves you without fail, with perfect forgiveness, with perfect compassion. His love never fails. The the, the comfort is this. God knows everything about you and loves you just the same. See, the thing is, if people knew, if human beings knew everything about me, I don't know that anyone would ever love me. But God knows everything about me and loves me with an everlasting, perfect love. See, your conscience may condemn you, but but God doesn't if you're in Christ. God forgives. So here's the key idea. Instead of listening so much to what your heart says about you and your relationship to God, you should listen to what God, who knows all things, has said about your relationship to him. Your conscience is fallible, His knowledge is infallible. Let me read some summaries of this so you get the point from the commentator. He says, When we do not love in action and in truth, God, who is greater than our hearts and knows all things, deals with us 
Sometimes our heart rightly condemns us, blames us, and judges us for not loving others in a real, true, and genuine sense. Our conscience calls us out. God in grace and mercy can help us overcome and conquer this. He will motivate us to just say no to a hard and unloving heart. He sees everything, so he knows what's going on. Indeed, he knows our heart better than we know them ourselves. He'll inspire us, encourage us, and challenge us to love others just like he has loved us. Our conscience can be too lenient in its verdict. However, our conscience may also be too severe, forgetting that no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. God is greater than all, and he knows all. He's the perfect judge. None of the believer's failures or successes escapes his notice. This is the difference between conscience and omniscience. He knows, he sees, yet he still accepts us in Christ. End quote. So the two ways that John gives us here to reassure our hearts when our heart condemns us is this. To one, recognize that God has borne the fruit of love by his Holy Spirit in your life, though it's often weak and poor. And secondly, instead of listening to how your heart feels about yourself and how you think God might feel about you, listen to what God has said in his word. Just because you feel condemned and that God must hate you doesn't mean that he does. Certainly not. He reassures us that he knows everything and yet still loves us. He knows that he's produced the fruit of love in us, genuinely, as weak as it may be at times. He knows that we are his and we should reassure our heart before him by trusting that what he says is true, no matter how much our conscience may accuse us. So this sort of assurance, of course, is is vital for joy. And this sort of assurance of salvation from God has other great benefits as well. And the main one here in this text coming up is to be able to approach God in prayer. Having this assurance enables us to approach God confidently in prayer. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So he's saying when we, have, when we have reassured our hearts before God by trusting his promise of forgiveness and recognizing the fruit of the spirit that he has produced in our life, our heart won't condemn us anymore. We won't lack this assurance anymore. We will know that we're forgiven and loved by God. And the result of that is a great confidence in the presence of God. One commentator said, Seeing who I am in Christ, I have confidence and boldness. The boldness with which the Son appears before the Father, and not not which the accused appears before the judge. In other words, assurance of your salvation gives you confidence that you can approach God as your Father, not as a condemning judge. We can speak to God as our Father who loves us, as as one uh, whom we're in the family with. We can have confidence so much that we can make our requests known to him. Charles Spurgeon said of this, he says, If our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. And he says, He who has a clear conscience comes to God with confidence. Childlike confidence makes us pray as none else can. It makes a man pray for great things, which he never would have asked for if he had not learned this confidence. And it makes him pray for little things, 
which, many, which a great many are afraid to ask for because they have not yet felt towards God the confidence of children. See how important this is? For something as, as basic as prayer, you must know that God has accepted you in Christ, that he's forgiven you and loves you and that you are saved. You can have confidence to approach God, not as a judge who will make the hammer fall, but as your loving father who loves to give good gifts to his children. The more we're confident of our acceptance with God, we can confidently approach him then and expect to receive from him what we ask. Now that phrase there, you look at that and you say, oh, what's, what's that about? When we ask him, we can, we'll receive what we ask there in verse uh, 22. Whenever we ask, we receive from him. Now, of course, this is not a verse that makes God out to be a genie that would grant your every wish. In fact, it's actually a lot better than that. God gives you everything that you ask for that's according to his will. What does that mean? Joel Beakey nails this with great clarity. He says this, I quote, A child is confident that he or she will be given whatever is asked of a parent, so long as their request is deemed good and right by the parent. Listen to that again. This is, this is right on. A child is confident that he or she will receive what is, what is asked of a parent, so long as their request is deemed good and right by the parent. In other words, God only gives you what he says is good. God does not give you the things that you think are good. He gives you things that he thinks are good. And that's infinitely better than a genie who would just give you what you want. Because you don't know what's good for you. But God does. He only works things for your good. Remember Romans 8, 28? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love, to love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now John goes on to say here that we'll receive whatever we ask, and he says, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So what this is saying is that God answers our prayers because we're his people. And we have confidence that we are his people because we bear the fruit of the Spirit. We keep his commandments as, as that result of being born again. He's saying we have confidence before God and receive from God whatever we ask because we're true children of God. And God loves to give good gifts to his children. Again, Joel Beakey explains it well. He says, A trusting child believes in his father's love and wisdom and trusts his father to do what is best. A loving child does not want anything but what is good and right for him. John says in verse 22, Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. By grace, we receive from God because we show by our deeds and our desire to please him that we trust and love him and are his true children. Obedience is doing what pleases the Father who loves us, the Savior who redeemed us, and the Spirit who indwells us. So no matter how we long for a, so no matter how we long for a prayer to be answered, whether it be for health or a job or a relationship, the Christian concludes every prayer by saying, not my will, but thy will be done. That acknowledges that we do not want to ask for anything that does not please God. We want only what he wills, end quote. God answers our prayers because we're his children, his true children. And we show that we're his true children because we do what pleases him. We keep his commandments. 
we aim to please our Heavenly Father. That's what His true children do. Those who are born of Him follow after Him and aim to please Him. And since we are His true children, again, He wants to give us all the good that He can. So what are these commands that John's referring to that we do that are pleasing to God and demonstrate that we really are His children? Well, he defines that in the next verse, verse 23. He says, 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So now John is is summing up a section here, again, by looking at what are the marks of a true child of God. In particular, he says that a true child of God keeps God's commandments and does what is pleasing in his sight. Then he defines here in verse 23 two things, two commands that summarize what a true Christian is. A true Christian, one, believes in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and two, loves the brothers. A true Christian believes in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and loves the brothers. Now, that first command, to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is not a command of the law, but it's a command of the gospel, to believe in the name of Jesus. Now, each word in that phrase with regard to Jesus is important. We're not just believing in someone named Jesus. We believe in a particular person with particular attributes. You'll recall the false teachers believed in somebody named Jesus, but it was a false Jesus. He was not the Messiah, not truly God and truly man in one person. God commands us here to believe in the true Jesus. Look at the phrase. He says that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So first of all, this Jesus is God's son. Okay, his son, God's son. Jesus is eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, the same substance with the Father. He is God's only son by nature, and of course, we're God's sons by adoption. This son of God is Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who is called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. He's the historical Jesus of Scripture, who was born of the Virgin Mary who was truly a man, and at the same time, truly God. And this son of God named Jesus is the Christ, Jesus Christ, which means Messiah or anointed one. This is God's chosen servant. This is the Jesus, the Christ, the prophesied Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. This is the prophet and priest and king of God, the Lord of all, whom God has chosen to save his people from their sins. So God's command is for us to believe in that Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, the true Jesus, truly God, truly man, the only Savior of God's elect, and no other fake Jesus. So belief in the true Jesus is a mark of true conversion. Of course, if you believe in a false Jesus, you're not a Christian. A false Jesus cannot save you because a false Jesus does not exist. And God God has not commanded you to believe in a false Jesus, but in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the second command that a true Christian fulfills is to love the brothers. And that's been the focus of uh, this section of John chapter 3. Again, 1 John 3, 14. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brother. He who does not love abides in death. That's been the the test that we've been looking at for a little while now. So when we put verses 22 and 23 together, we'll see this point more clearly. He says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is, this is his commandment. 
that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. So God answers our prayers because we believe in the true Jesus and we love our brothers. In other words, God answers our prayers because we're truly his people and we bear the fruit that demonstrates that. Because we have confidence that we truly know the Lord and are saved, we confidently can ask the Father to provide all of our needs for us, to give us every good thing in accordance with his will, and trust that he will. He will always give us what he deems good. We can safely trust in him to hear us, to take care of us, because we know that he has loved us with an everlasting love. And we know that if our heart does not condemn us. So when we're struggling because our hearts feel so guilty that we do not think that God could possibly love us, or we think that we're just too sinful, that he, we could not possibly be converted, we have to listen to what John says here. Make your heart confident before God. Don't deny the work of grace that he's accomplished in your life by giving you a genuine love for the brothers, even though it's weak and inconsistent. Your love is weak. Your love is marred with sin. But if it's there, if it's there, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Don't deny it. It's only present there in God's true people. Remember, your conscience is not infallible either. You may easily forget that God loves you more than you really understand and that his forgiveness doesn't end for his people. So the point is this. Instead of listening to your heart, which says that there's no way that God really loves you or that you're not truly converted, just look to God and his promises and his word. He is greater than your conscience, and he knows everything. He knows everything and yet still promises perfect forgiveness to you. So as a result of that confidence that you know that you are secure in Christ, that you're truly one of God's people and are loved by him, you should confidently and humbly pray to God to provide for your every need with all the good gifts that God loves to give his people, and he will. Let's go as a prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask that you would show us in your word your great promises, not, not for just your church in general, but for us as your individual people particularly, that we would know with certainty your unfailing love for us, that we would see with clarity your work of grace in our hearts, that we really do as weak and failing as we are, we really do love one another. I pray that you would give us all rock-solid assurance of our salvation, that we would not so much go based on how we feel today or tomorrow, but on the promises that you've given to us. You know everything, and you're greater than our fallible consciences who are often mistaken and imbalanced. So I pray, Lord, that you'll give us confidence before you, knowing of your great love. That is a great source of joy. And I pray that you would give us that joy to the glory of Jesus. And ask this in his name. Amen.